0: we do a better job of passing on our our fanship of our local sports teams than we do passing on our faith to the next generation Woo. right because we know our sports Stepping teams. on some toes dude right now we're in fantasy football but we have to do a better job of understanding the history of the church and, and why these objections don't hold water because because that's really more important than our fantasy football teams has
1: there ever been a question about god or faith or the bible that kept you up at night? Well then, today is your day. We've asked folks to send in those deep, dark, uncomfortable, nagging questions because today we're unloading all of them on a professional Christian apologist. This is my friend, Jay Warner Wallace, founder of Cold Case Christianity, and he's here to take the heat of all your pressing objections. All right, my friend, are you ready for this grilling?
0: Oh, my goodness. <laughs> not,
1: yeah, go ahead. <laughs> okay, so the first one's actually from me, so I'm cheating a little okay, bit. Uh, and so a little bit of background. My entire da- dad's side of the family is Hindu. Okay. In fact, what's up, dad, if you're watching? And he poses this question quite often, okay. and I, it's a compelling one, which is, hey, listen, it's cool what you believe but you're Christian more than likely because you grew up in the West. If you would have grown up, grown up in India, like me, you'd be Hindu. Or if you grew up in Syria or Saudi Arabia, you'd be Muslim. And are people who grew up in Mumbai or Chennai or you know someplace like going to hell, eternity away from God, just because of where they grew up or maybe they've never even
0: heard the gospel. It just seems uh, a little unfair. What say you? Well, okay, first of all, Is it true that that we, it's often true that we grow up in an area where we have access to ideas and we end up embracing those ideas. As a matter of fact, what you believe as an adult is most likely something you got from your parents. We see that kind of transmission of ideas now. But I grew up in an area where I never met a Christian. Hmm. I mean, I I don't remember anyone ever like telling me anything about Jesus or inviting me to church, yet here I am. so I don't know that it's always the case. And certainly, the first Christians did not grow up in an area where Christianity was favored. Mm, that's a good point. They didn't have anybody around them that was you know, kind of coercing them into Christianity or even offering the truth. of. Christ. They actually came out of an entirely anti-Christian environment, and yet we have a huge movement of Christianity that occurs. I actually think that, that God does the work in this and that, that God is the one who reaches us. And he reaches people just like me who you might think well there's just no how are we going to reach this guy he doesn't know anybody who's going to well god does amazing things there's a lot of folks for example in the muslim community that will say they were first reached by dreams mm. uh, Nabil Qureshi is one of those folks who had a christian friend who kind of argued with him a little bit david yeah. wood
1: and he wrote a brilliant book called seeking allah Find finding jesus, jesus. Which, uh, that book i cannot recommend oh but. it's an awesome book it's incredible. And,
0: and so this goes to show that, that god has has the power to send to reach to intercede, and so I don't worry about those things. Not do I feel it a burden to, to be the, the the feet of you know to, to use my my abilities to share the truth. Of course I do, uh, but I also know that God is in control. Let me press you a little bit. So, what about monks who are you know really pressing into their Buddhism
1: or you know uh, Hindu priests at uh, at temples in Kerala that are really pressing into their Hinduism to find God? Does it does it seem unfair
0: that God would? Abandon them? Well, it's okay, so there's 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 belief in the true God and there's everything else mm. in a huge category. So as an atheist, I was for many years pressing into my atheism. Honestly, I loved the sciences and I thought that Christians were such fools that the only people I ever knew who were Christians were not as a kid. It was as an adult when I was making arrests, the people I was taking to jail would tell me they had just gotten saved. They were <laughs> Christians. Oh, yeah. I, sh- I, know, sh- I know better, I shouldn't do this. You know, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I go to church. I'm like, really? Okay, so if that's what it is, I just pressed even harder into my, my, my non-Christian beliefs. If you were somebody who was dying of tuberculosis, and I know the cure is isoniazid, but you are committed to Tylenol. You think Tylenol, I, that's cheaper, I can get it over the counter. And I really believe that Tylenol, I sincerely believe that Tylenol will, will cure my TB. Um, well, should I let you go? Or should I, if there's a true cure, Wow. Should I encourage you to take the true cure, even though you're convinced on a personal level, subjectively, this is my cure is Tylenol. Okay, well, I, I could let you go, but it is going to result in your death. At some point, if there's a truth about the cure for TB, I should share it with you. Now, we're all facing death and at some point. We're all fa- facing uh, an end to our material existence, right, if you're an atheist. If there's a cure to that, should I share it with you? And you might say, "Well, no, I like Tylenol. I like this other thing. I find purpose in this other thing." But if it's true that there's a cure, and, it's, and like every other cure, it's the cure. Should I share it with you? Um, I think I should. Yeah. And why would you be surprised that all the alternatives? would not work. If there's one true cure, Mm. this is true in a spiritual sense too. If there's one true cure for your spiritual death, shouldn't I share it with you? And why would you be surprised that not every cure will work and that some people Mm. will be sincerely committed to their other notions of their cure, but could be sincerely wrong at the same time. I've never heard it put that way, but that makes a lot of sense. And so it's just a matter of us deciding, is this objectively true? Let me just rabbit trail for a second with yeah. you. Look, we all know the world's got lots of subjective claims. So if I said to you that ice cream is the best dessert, well, that's my subjective view. That claim is grounded in me as the subject. So we call that a subjective truth claim. But if I say that ice, and ice is the cure for TB, well, I don't decide that with my will. I don't decide that with my opinion. That's grounded in the thing called isoniazid. It's grounded in the object. Come on. And so that's an objective truth claim. Now, look, if I said Tylenol is the cure for TB, that's also an objective claim because it's not grounded in your opinion. It's grounded in you're making a claim about Tylenol. Okay, but here's the problem. It's false. And so there are false objective claims. As a matter of fact, once you discover that a claim is objective, grounded in the object, rather than subjective, grounded in the subject, the only thing left to do is determine if it's true or false. Wow. So the claim that God exists, that's not a subjective claim. That's an objective claim. He may not exist, it could be a false objective claim, but I can't make it so by willing it. I can't keep it from being so by willing it. It's not grounded in me as an opinion, it's grounded in the object known as God. If I said to you, Jesus is the only way to God, that is also an objective claim about reality. I can't make it so by desiring it, and I can't keep it from being so by desiring. It's grounded in the nature of the object known as Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves the question, It's not as though all of these things will cure TB. They all could fail or one could succeed. They can't all succeed because they make absolutely opposite claims. So if Christianity is right, then Hinduism is wrong. Hmm. If Hinduism is right, Christianity is wrong. They make opposite claims. So, So the question is, are any of them right? And if they are, should we all start paying attention to that one? That's what we have to do. Wow, that is extremely, extremely helpful.
1: Uh, I'm excited to to go on because I uh, I'm not sure I'm excited about. I, I don't know
0: which, <laughs> what kind of questions you have. Well, there. I'm
1: saving the 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 spiciest for last. All right, go ahead. All right, so this second question, this one's from Johnny. Given that the books making up biblical canon were developed over time, and given that many books of the Bible were also developed over time with pieces being grafted onto old scrolls, Proverbs and Psalms being easy examples of that. Why should we trust what we have now is canon? What makes it different than any other man made writing like the Quran or the Book of Mormon? What can we point to, especially in history, that bears out that this was inspired by God? Ugh.
0: Golly, okay, so there's a lot, <laughs> lot to answer there. I'm gonna to try to give you the shortest possible answer. Okay, first of all, the idea this is kind of cobbled together over time is simply untrue. And it's can be demonstrated with the evidence that it's not cobbled together over time. So I'll just go the longer way. We test uh, accounts in history. We test accounts in even modern, even current history. If I have an account from 35 years ago, where somebody says, this is how the murder occurred. I worked cold cases most of my career. So this is always the nature of my cases. They are unsolved murders. You test eyewitnesses and are four criteria, which we have already talked about it. but it's it's are they written early enough because if that's the case we don't have to worry about them being cobbled together over centuries two can they be corroborated in some way three uh, have they changed over time that's a big claim you're trying to making here and four is there a, a reason why they might lie to us a bias well let's go though this is kind of centered on the third question have they changed over time so here's what we do in crime scenes we we ask the question Uh, because it could happen. You could have some piece of evidence in the crime scene, and 35 years later, I bring it to trial in a cold case. And sure enough, I don't know if somebody pulled it out of property and changed it 10 years in, and nobody saw it. So now I have this tampered piece of evidence. Kind of the same claim is happening with the scriptures, right? You have some version of Jesus, but they added a bunch of stuff we can't trust, and then we get it in the canon of scripture. Well, how do we test that? Well, we ask a question in the crime scene. Hey, was there somebody who saw that, Like, who's the officer who collected that evidence? And back in the day, believe it or not, we didn't have a lot of CSI officers back in the 60s and 70s. The officer may have collected it himself. He maybe took a Polaroid. He wrote a report, certainly, describing the piece of evidence. Then he brings it to the property room, where they make another report, whether they're receiving. If my my dad, for example, was a cop, if he touched it as a detective, he would make a report about what he saw. Then he brings it to the next guy. They write a report, brings it to the next guy. By the time I check it out of property, 30 years later, I'm writing a report. Now I've got image, after image, after image, and report, after report, after report over time, and they are like links in a chain that connect the past to the present. And I tell you what, that description of that piece of property better not change. Whatever I'm describing over here 30 years later, it better match the very first description. We call this in evidence terms, the chain of custody. Do we have a chain of custody that is uninterrupted that we can actually see if the evidence has changed along the way well the same thing can be done with the new testament so if john is our author of a gospel of john like who are the officers he gives it to i'm not sure what john's gospel says for all i know john's gospel is very very simple it's a jesus who's not miraculous maybe maybe all that stuff was added How do I know? Well, who do you give it to? Who's the next link in the chain of custody? He had three personal students, Ignatius, Polycarp, and Papias. Lucky for us, they wrote about what they learned sitting at the feet of the eyewitnesses. So I can read their documents. We get seven letters from Ignatius, one from Polycarp. We can see, is Jesus less spectacular, or are all the divine elements of Jesus available in the very next link in the chain? Mm. Their student is Irenaeus, we can check him. His is Hippolytus, we can check him. And you keep on doing this through history to see if the thing has changed, if what this claim is, is this has been cobbled together. No. The Jesus that we know today, the, the miraculous, born of a virgin, worked miracles, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, that dude has not changed. Those claims have not changed. They're present in the very first link, second link, third link, fourth link. There's no adaptation. If you wanna say he's a late legend, he'd have to be two things, late and a legend, and he's neither. Mm. So we can't, That I, I, I'm, one thing I'm, I'm certain of is the story of Jesus. You, know, you can still reject it, but to argue that I'm rejecting it because it's changed over time is just, it just doesn't match the evidence. Wow. So I think in the end, uh, I never had a problem with, with that. But here's what's even, I think, more astounding about it, is that what's in your canon, there were some books that the early church used that are not in your New Testament. Hmm. First Clement. The early church read First Clement, a letter written by a disciple of, of uh, Paul who was actually one of the first two bishops in Rome. So this guy, first century character, he he actually wrote a letter called First Clement. It's beautiful, not in your Bible. Uh, Epistle of Barnabas, not in your Bible. Uh, Shepherd of Hermas, used by the first century believers, not in your Bible. Why? Not written by witnesses. One of the earliest criteria for what's in your Bible is it had to be somebody, as Peter said, who touched Jesus who saw him, as John said, we just saw this. We were the ones who interacted with the word. So if you look at all the books of your Bible, the ones that came in, had the most uh, contention about whether we should include them or not, are ones that, number one, were either hard to understand, like Revelation, because that's the other criteria, is it edifying? Does it tell us something about Jesus that we can take and and grow from? And Revelation, for a lot of early readers, was like, I'm not even sure what it means. Should we include it? But Hebrews, should we put it in? Well, who wrote it? If it's written by Apollos, it's out. He's not an eyewitness. Paul, okay. Peter, okay. But Apollos, he can't be in. So it turns out that gave me great comfort as an investigator to know that's an early criteria. And as a matter of fact, who are the earliest speakers of the gospel, of the truth of Jesus? Well, they are all eyewitnesses. So, so when Judas is taken out of the mix, who do they replace him with? Upper room, Acts 1, Peter says, hey, we need another eyewitness, somebody who has seen Jesus from the baptism to the resurrection. That's who we need, because it turns out this is all going to be based on eyewitness testimony. Wow. So that's, that's why I trust those, those earliest uh, reports, because they are the, and even the skeptic like a Ehrman will agree, that of all the stories of Jesus that have ever been written in antiquity, the earliest are the four gospels hmm. and that's the first test are they written early enough look if you want to lie about jesus here's what you do you wait till everyone who knows the truth about jesus is dead then you can say whatever you want but if you're going to write early in the first century at the same time that people are available to tell you that you're wrong yeah that's that's, that's dicey
1: and i think that's such a huge distinction is that these people who wrote this weren't were b- not were are just
0: believing they were eyewitnesses well and look at it this way um, what's the what? What convenient truism do I get out of I'm Paul? What do I get out of this? What am I getting out of this? I'm just getting beat up. I'm just getting imprisoned. Like what? What's in it for me? Like what worldly thing that typically drives us? And and if you're thinking, well, it's it's the, his esteem. Look, I had that. I was one of the best students of one of the best rabbis in the first century. I had enough power to draw up papers to execute Christians with a group that wasn't considered to be this lowly Christian. I was with the Jews. So why would I jump out of this group where I already have what you think I'm trying to get? I already have it. Yeah. To, to me, this, this argument that there's something in it for them just doesn't, doesn't hold up. I'm so frustrated mm. with our inability as a church family mm. to be able to answer the questions in our own mind, Yeah. especially for our kids. Yeah. Now it turns out that most studies will show you this, that it's not that you have to have an answer for your doubting son or your doubting daughter. It's just, you have to be the kind of person that allows the question. Yeah. If you're gonna stifle the question, that, yeah. that skepticism is gonna turn into yeah. deconversion usually, yep. Yep. deconstruction. But if you're somebody who's like, yeah, you can ask this question, Look, we do a better job of passing on our, our fanship of our local sports teams than we do passing on our faith to the next generation, right? Because we know our sports teams. Stepping on some toes, Jim. Dude, right now we're in fantasy football. I can tell you, I know why my team, I constructed this team a certain way, but we have to do a better job of understanding the history of the church and, and why these objections don't hold water because, because that's really more important than our fantasy football teams.
1: Ready for question three? Yep. All right. Christina asks, We know Easter and Christmas days are borrowed traditions from pagan holidays. We know that there were plenty of dying and rising gods in the ancient world. We know that there are many similarities between cultures and religions, like the flood story, for example. Mm -hmm. So how do we know that the idea of Jesus of Nazareth Dying and rising from the dead
0: isn't just some conglomeration of a bunch of older ideas and myths. Okay, so this is what I've done a lot of work on because this is one of the biggest objections I had in mind. That was, I could have said that. I could have spoken that objection pretty close to the way it was just spoken. So that was my view. Uh, and so I've written a lot about this in a book called Person of Interest. But here's, here's what I would say. Number one, um, the fact that we are going to co-opt something that's precious to you to celebrate something that's true that doesn't surprise me that doesn't invalidate do i think that jesus was born in december i i don't i've written about that online too i don't think so mm. i don't think from the biblical text i think it's probably a spring but that's okay the fact that we converted an entire body of people because we simply celebrated the truth Uh, On the same day they celebrated a lie? Okay, that's not unusual for everyone who holds a view. But here's a more important claim. Is Jesus just another dying and rising savior? Because there seem to be similarities. Here's what I did. Most people make these claims when they haven't really studied the mythologies they say that that was copied for Jesus. Oh, he's like Mithras. Oh, he's like Horus. He's like Osiris. Read those mythologies. And here's what I did. I went back and I read all of the major mythologies. And I made a list of any time I saw a similarity between all the mythologies. And what I discovered, like 15 common characteristics of these ancient stories about God. And that shouldn't surprise you because all of them are, are basically just reflect our expectation of God. What's interesting about it is that none of the ancient myths have all 15 attributes until you get to Jesus of Nazareth. C.S. Lewis puts it this way that those ancient myths are the myths of men he's using the word myth uh, to mean not a lie a story about God whereas Jesus is the myth of God those were the works of men who are thinking about God Jesus is God incarnate who actually personifies every expectation of the ancients but if you think that somehow the virgin birth the dying on a cross this is so different yes broadly speaking it matches the expectations of the ancients but wouldn't you want that to be the case like yeah if you're thinking hard about god you're gonna this is what paul says on mars hill he says you people here are very religious you got all kinds of monuments there's one here for the unknown god Well, I'll tell you what you're kind of right and kind of wrong mm. i'm here to introduce you to who we saw with our own eyes who will blow you away, who will meet every expectation and more that you have for God. Why? Because he is God. So don't be surprised that the real God will meet your expectations. If you think hard about God, some of those expectations will be met. Some places you're just gonna be wrong. But it's it, that's what you see in the history of our ideas about God. Mm. Now, by the way, if you think that Jewish inventors of Jesus, In the first century are thinking i'm going to invent a god to 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 sell to my other jewish members of my community uh jews who have been told their entire existence that they are to reject the pagan gods they are not to to get involved with the pagan gods. so i'm going to go ahead and cobble together a story to convince these jewish believers using all of the pagan mythology around us Okay, that's like the worst strategy possible (laughs) for this particular group. Right, But if it just so happens that the story of Jesus is true and he might meet your expectations, it's not just the pagans, I say pagans, I mean the non-Jews, that he meets expectations. Well, it turns out if I described the attributes of Jesus, I could very well be describing David because so much of David's story matches Jesus or Jonah or Joshua. It turns out that the same expectations have been developed within the Jewish community because the t- archetypes, the, the patriarchs, have, they foreshadow Jesus. So Jesus comes, the one man, the one God who comes and meets all the expectations of the non-Jews hmm. and all of the types of the Jews. Wow. So he, he, to me, all that stuff about how similar he is to ancient mythology is not an evidence against Jesus. It's an evidence for Jesus.
1: Hmm. Wow.
0: You that's say, a long answer no, to a short you, you question. you just say it so
1: eloquently, and I'm I'm just so thankful because uh, it's it's beyond helpful. There's obviously a, a lot more questions we could we could get after, but there's there's one that 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 always comes up. That's uh, the spiciest of them all. All right, we'll have this be our last one. Okay, uh, this is the one that when we kind of pulled people, like, hey, what would you want to hear? This is the one that keeps coming up. All right, here it comes. Can there be an all good? All powerful, all knowing God coexisting with the evil in this world. How can a benevolent God create a world with such suffering? Why doesn't all good God allow evil? Why doesn't he just intervene to stop evil?
0: Okay, a couple of things here. This is a harder question to answer because if you asked me, uh, I often get asked this kind of question why? If there's an all-good, all-powerful God, even if there isn't, why did this happen to my 10-year-old daughter? And I had a case like that. It was my dad's case first. It was a 1972 murder. 10 years old. Terrible, brutal murder. I was 11 at the time, and it shook us. And years later, when I reopened it, that was a question that gets asked. Why, Why? how could anyone do this? And why would this happen to my daughter? Well, it turns out that question requires a number of variables. That's how we solve the case. So in a similar way, if I answer this question broadly, why does evil occur in a world that's supposedly governed by an all-powerful and all-loving God? Well, there's a number of variables. Why would you be surprised? And this is a truth when you're solving any act of evil. You're investigating any act of evil. So I would say there's a couple of things. Now, without going through all of them, I'll just give you some things to chew on. The first is you have to have a proper view of eternity. Mm. So as an atheist, my view of life was a certain kind of geometry. It was a line segment starts with birth it extends through to the point of death and that's all you get and i'm hoping to get 90 95 clean years drop dead in my sleep after a nice pasta dinner (laughs) like i don't want any pain but if i get cancer at 40 and i suffer for 10 years and die i'm going to be upset that's going to be evil in my view because i had an expectation of 90 clean now what if though my view of the life is wrong what if the geometry is wrong what if life is not a line segment but is instead a ray, starts at point of birth, extends through that point of death and goes off infinitely in that direction. Well, now that's different because there are people you know who've had surgeries when they were a baby. By the time they were three, they didn't even, it was terrible. If I stopped them at the surgery and I could talk to them, how's life going for you? They say, it's terrible. Why would God allow this? Now, by the time they're three, they don't remember the surgery. Evil is always measured in the context of your lifetime and your expectations. Mm. So so if this view of, of life is true, the, the ray, well, it turns out that every year you're on the second other side of the second dot, you're in eternity. Well, by comparison, your year 90 years is shorter. A thousand years into eternity, your 90 years is very small. A million years into eternity, your 90 years is a millisecond. The question is, so you can have the worst 90 years possible But if our worldview is true, that's just like that surgery you had when you were a baby. You 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 have to live in the context of eternity, not in the context of the line segment. Eternity changes everything. Now you should have a problem if they're an atheist, because all you get is 90 years for all your desires to be met, all justice to be, uh, uh, you know, all evil to be vanquished, all justice to be achieved. Well, good luck with that. We don't have that worldview. Our lives, we are all eternal creatures. We have to measure anything in the context of eternity, not in the context of this week. And that's the thing that we don't do. Often as Christians, we live as though we are practical atheists. We think it all has to happen in this 90 years. Hmm. We don't live with eternity in mind. So I think that's one aspect of it. Let me give you another one. I think that God, like we said before, we talked about uh, love. You can't, if there's a loving, all loving God, he is gonna create a planet in which love is possible but that yeah. means it's logically impossible to create a world where love can emerge without creating a world with free agency I think that's a, a massive point can you can you expand on that I think
1: that's that's such a crucial point that if if God wanted to create a universe in which true genuine love was actually possible then in that space people
0: would by definition have to have the ability to reject that love. that's right and to do bad things if you want to, people to be in a world where they can do genuine good you have to have them have the opportunity at least to do genuine evil now here's what a good god would do he's not as though he's giving you this dangerous thing free agency and he's throwing right. the knife at you not telling you how to catch it you know by the handle to the blade no he actually throws the knife and he gives you a book that will guide you so you will not abuse your free agency. Mm. Now, if you don't choose to read the book, you may abuse your free agency, but that's not because God has not given you the beautiful thing called free agency and given you the guidelines so you won't abuse free agency. Our goal then is to actually follow the guidelines. We may not do that, but that's part of the gamble. But again, it's okay because justice, you might say, well, then, un- then things are going to be unjust. Mm. Bad things are going to happen. Well, yeah, yeah, if it's a line segment. But if it's a ray, there's no crying on the other side of the second
1: dot. Right. And that to me is actually kind of a, a sad concept that if people that are atheist, I find have a massive heart for justice,
0: mm-hmm. which, bravo. If there's no God, there is no justice. That's right. Well, so that's the other thing, because it's one more step. I, I used to think this is the lamest explanation for evil in the world, which is, you know, is, does it build character? Like, could God be trying to achieve something in our character through evil? Like, how could this family who loses this daughter achieve anything in character? Mm-hmm. But here's the point, as an atheist, there are certain attributes of character that we all admire as atheists. We all love courage, nobody loves a coward. We We cherish courage, we cherish compassion, we cherish charity. Well, these are not things you just flip a button. If you want your kids to be courageous, you don't just say, okay, from now on be courageous. No, courage is a response. Charity is a response. Compassion is a response. It's, it's something you, you, you respond. So that means I've got to do something. I've got to actually, if you want a world in which courage is going to emerge, I have to design a world in which there's danger that you can respond to courageously. I have to design a world in which there's poverty you can respond to charitably. That's a great. Point. A room where there are ch- a, a, a world where there are challenges and traumas that you can respond to with compassion. In other words, if you want the things that we all revere as atheists, mm. you have to create a world that looks just like the one we're in. That's a great because point. that's the world. this is why I never pray for patience. If you pray for patience, what's going to happen? <laughs> God's going to give you something that requires that response and yeah. nobody wants that. So so again, all of these virtues are what God has designed into this environment because you don't want to, do you think it'd be better if God designed a world where there could be no virtues? That's ridiculous. So, but the last thing I would say is, is why are we calling this stuff evil to begin with? Mm. Like, what is the standard? If point. you're saying it's evil... Because I don't like it. Well, then you could change it. You could get rid of all evil tomorrow by simply changing your opinion of it. But it turns out you're saying, we're we're saying it's evil because we think it's objectively evil, regardless of my opinion. In other words, there's a standard by which we measure it. Mm -hmm. But that means there's God, if you think there's objective evil, things that are evil no matter, it's never okay to torture babies for fun. Okay, if that's an objective evil, there'd have to be a standard Yep. of righteousness that is objective, that you're using to measure. And by comparison, in other words, if evil is the shadow, I think Lewis also talked about this, then then if there's no light, there are no shadows. So to argue that I don't like that there's shadows means that you have to first admit there has got to be Light, mm-hmm. so in the end, evil does not work as an evidence against the existence of an all-powerful, all-loving God. It actually is an evidence that there is one, because that's the standard that you think is missing here. Now the question is, why would God allow this to happen? Well, that's what we're talking about, right? Is that why? We, he would, one last thing on this: when when someone offers this objection and they're saying there's an all-loving, all-powerful God, so there's the problem. He can't be both. Either he doesn't care, he could stop it, but he doesn't. Or he can't stop it, then he's not all-powerful. Well, there's a, that's not the limited definition of God that we believe as Christians. God is just all-loving and all-powerful. You're missing some dimensions of God. One of the dimensions you're missing is that God is all-knowing. Now, an all-knowing God might allow evil because he knows something that's further down the domino chain than you do. He knows what good... I work a lot with officers who have suffered trauma, and If you suffer trauma, you're going along at a certain pace and you get the trauma knocks you to your knees. And if you stay down there and you can't perform anymore, you're suffering PTSD. If you can suffer the trauma and get back to where you were before, we call that resiliency. Mm. But if you suffer the trauma, I could actually help you to do even better than you were before the trauma. That's called post-traumatic growth. How do you do it? Well, the secular studies show it. It's called meaning-making. It's trying to find sense and why this aspect of my life is part of my overarching story. No, I don't call it meaning-making. I call it meaning-finding because we can't just make up our own meaning. But if there's an objective meaning to this, some reason why this might have happened to you because there's something unbelievable that's waiting for you to do. It's part of the overarching purpose of your life. You will grow on the other side of the trauma. Hmm. You have to find its place in your story. And if you don't have God's story to base it on, yeah. Joseph knew God's story. When he's in prison for a decade, he knew that it's, this is still part of the overarching story. He didn't lose his hope. If you yeah. don't know your place in the overarching story, if there, if you don't think there is an overarching story, then it's what Dawkins says. The universe is just blind and pitiless. Mm. It doesn't care about you. There is no good. There is no bad. It's just a matter of opinion. Just get over it. On the other hand, if there's a God who loves you, this event, this evil, might be part of the overarching story of your life. And that's what we're called to figure out. Well,
1: that was only four questions. So we need to obviously have you back. Uh, Speaking of which, if you have any questions uh, about anything, about anything that... Uh, My friend Jim here said, please, please put it in the comments or different questions, one that wasn't one of these four, uh, because we're going to obviously have to have you back uh, because there are, I I think the most important thing is, listen, questions are fine. Unanswered questions are where people get in trouble. So uh, Jay Warner Wallace, thank you so much. That was awesome.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: I appreciate you.